You're listening to audio from The Orchard Church in Collierville, Tennessee. If you would like more information about our church or our ministries, please visit theorchardchurch.com. So while we're finishing up, let me tell you a story. There was a mom who was teaching her two little boys about Easter and about uh, Jesus, and she was describing what Pilate did to Jesus. And her six-year-old said, uh, was just really mad, said, Mom, that that wasn't right what Pilate did, was it? And she said, no, um, Jesus, God used Jesus' death on the cross to forgive us and, and save us, but Pilate should have stood up for Jesus. And the little six-year-old thought for a moment, and he said, if I had been there, I would have grabbed Jesus, and we would have gone to the plane and gotten the plane, and the plane would have taken off. And his eight-year-old brother said, there were no planes in the Bible. And the little boy said, Duh, don't you ever listen? Mom, talk about the pilot. <laughs> and sometimes I wonder if God doesn't look down on us and say, Duh, don't you listen? <laughs> and that's true of the way we live our lives. It's true of the way we uh, relate to people. It's true of the way we forget to be humble. It's true of the way we we deal with, with our anger, and it's true about our financial lives. You cannot read the Bible without seeing how much the Bible speaks about money and possessions. Well over 2,000 verses uh, deal with it. Jesus talked about money and possessions more than he did about anything except the kingdom of God. He, he gave 38 parables. 19 of them had some kind of an economic context so you've got the story of the little boy who gave his, gave his lunch for Jesus to use, and you have the poor widow, and, and you have the rich fool, and just on and on and on. All the, and you have to ask the question, of all the things God had, could, could have put in the Bible and spoken about, why did he choose to speak about money and possessions more than just about anything? Well, why? Well, obviously, it's really important to God. And a lot of us need help in this area. And money has this tremendous potential for good and for evil. And money has a way of capturing our hearts. And the Lord knows that. So he speaks about it. I think you can boil down all that the Bible says about money and possessions to two things. Check me on this. Here's the first one. God owns it all and we're the managers. It all belongs to him, and he's called us to manage his stuff for him. For example, Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord, everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And Job 41.11 could not be more clear. God says, Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. And 1 Corinthians 6 says, You're not your own. You don't even belong to you. You were bought with a price. And we get so confused about this. It is so easy to drift into thinking, uh, it's, it's all mine to do with as I, as I please. We're like the woman who was at the airport between flights, and she picked up a magazine, got a magazine, bought one, bought a little package of cookies, and sat down at a table, began reading her magazine, and heard some rustling, and looked up, and there was this well-dressed man sitting at the table with her, and he was eating one of her cookies. And she looked at that, and she took one of her cookies Went back to her magazine and heard rustling again and looked over, and he had taken one of her cookies. 
And she's just beginning to get really ticked off. And so she takes one of the cookies, one left. She looks and he smiles and breaks it in half. Gives half to her, keeps half. And she's just furious. He gets up and leaves and her plane is called. And she opens her purse to find her ticket. And there is her package of cookies. And here's the moral of that story. The way you look at something depends on who you think owns it. And so the Bible simply says, God owns it all. Deuteronomy 8, 17 says, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth, which means all of my energy, all of my intelligence, any break I've had in life, all of my education, all of my relationships, all of my resources, all of my time has been given to me as a gift from God. It belongs to him. And he's entrusted it to my care to manage it and be responsible managing it uh, for him. He owns it and we steward it. We manage it. And the Bible says we're, re we're really responsible. Luke 12, Jesus said, from everyone who's been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who's been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. So I want to give you the most important piece of financial wisdom you will ever hear in your life. And you won't hear it on TV, and you're not going to get it from a seminar. Here's the single most important piece of financial wisdom you'll ever hear. You're going to die. It's a cheerful thought, isn't it? Walking up the orchard, you're going to die. In fact, I want you to turn to the person beside you and look him right in the eye and say, you're going to die. Which means everything we have is on loan to us from God. He had it before we came to this world. We came in with empty pockets. We're going out with empty pockets. And when we're gone, he's going to loan it to somebody else. And everything we think is ours is going to maybe even the people you don't like. It's going to someone else. God owns it all. We're the managers. Here's the second piece. Here's the second, boiling it all down, what the scripture says about money and possessions. God owns it all. We're the managers. Second, everything we have has a purpose to be used to glorify God. Our money, our possessions, like everything in existence is meant to glorify God. First Corinthians 10 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And you say, what does that mean to glorify God? Well, that Greek word doxa has the idea of someone's opinion, what someone thinks about something. So to glorify God means you use what you have to make God look good. Now he is good, but a lot of people don't think he's good. And God has given us everything we have, money and possessions, whatever, for the purpose of using it to make him look all satisfying and great and good and kind and loving and strong. So we're called to figure out how can I use what God has given to me to point to him and to make him look good. And that brings us to the passage we're going to look at this morning. Because the Apostle Paul has been traveling around all of these different churches, collecting an offering from Gentile churches that he's going to send to Jerusalem to the poor Jews in the church there. 
And in those days, Jews and Gentiles did not get along. You didn't find them in the same church. They didn't even speak to each other. And Paul sees an opportunity that if he can get wealthier Gentile churches to give an offering for poor Jewish churches, he can demonstrate the power of God to bring people together and make God look great. And he doesn't even know if those Jews are going to accept the offering, but he thinks if they give it willingly and they give it cheerfully, I, I can demonstrate, this will demonstrate God's power to create unity, bring people together and make him look as something is thinking look great. So I want to read the passage. It's a little bit long, um, so track with me. I'm going to, usually, I use the internet, the, I usually I use the English Standard Version, but I'm going to use the NIV because it reads a little uh, easier. Would you stand, please, in honor of God and His Word? And I'm going to read from 2 Corinthians 8, 10 to 9, 5. So whatever you have, read along with me, or you can actually just look at the screen and watch there. Here's what Paul says. And here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. He's talking about this offering. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you're being hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need, and then there will be equality as it is written. He who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. I thank God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he's coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative, and we're sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. And what is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering which we administer in order to honor the Lord himself. So he says, I want this to glorify God and to show our eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. We are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. In addition, we're sending with them our brother, this is the third guy, who has proved to, to us in many ways that he's zealous, and now even more so because of his great confidence in you. And as for Titus, he's my partner and my fellow worker among you. As for our brothers, they are representatives of the churches and an honor to Christ, Therefore, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you so that the churches can see it. There's really no need for me to write to you about this service to the saints. I know your willingness to help. And I've been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year, you and Achaia were ready to give. And your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I'm sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow but that you may be ready, as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you promised. 
Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. This is God's word, and you can be seated. So let me just boil down what Paul says in this long passage. I think he's saying three things. In verses 10 through 12, he's saying, let's finish what God gave us to do. Let's finish the project. Most of us, myself included, get real enthusiastic about starting projects, but we either don't finish them or we finish them poorly. And Paul just says, let's finish what we started. And in verses 13 through 15, he says, let's do it together. Let's do it together. And then in verses Verse 16, all the way to the end, we read to chapter 9, verse 5, he says, let's do it wisely. Let's do it responsibly. So let me take those just one at a time for a moment. Paul says, let's finish the work that God has given to us. Let's finish it. And what had happened in that church that he's writing to is the same thing that has happened to the church of Jesus Christ in the United States. Let me explain. If today's a typical day, 38% of Americans are in church. About 38% weekly attend a church service somewhere. Those 38% give 67% of all charitable giving in this country, either religious or non-religious. Of all the charitable giving that goes on, the people who are in churches, those 38% give 67, almost two-thirds, more than two-thirds of all the giving that takes place. Within that 38% of people who are in church, 40% of that group are evangelicals. That is, they believe the Bible is true. It's God's word. They believe Jesus died on the cross. He's the only way to heaven, and and he is God. And that group give considerably more than the other groups who are in church. Hold that in your mind for a moment. Here's a second thing. In any voluntary organization, the the 80-20 rule reigns. 20% of the people do 80% of the work. It's probably true in this church. 20% of the people really believe this and they're fired up about it. And 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And this fact, if you look at our culture over the last 100 years, from 1920 to 1960, our disposable income doubled. Which means if you had grandparents or great-grandparents who were alive in 1920, then in 1960 you had parents, they made twice as much in 1960 as your grandparents made in 1920. And the same thing happened between 1960 and the year 2000. Incomes doubled. Which means you or your parents in 2000 were making twice as much as people made in 1960. And we are on track to do the very same thing by the year 2040. In the meantime, so giving our, our salaries are going like this. What has happened to giving? It's going like this. It's very interesting. As salaries have gone up, giving or generosity has gone down percentage-wise. Our prosperity, for which we are thankful, 1 Timothy 6 says, God gives us all things richly to enjoy, has somehow choked are giving. You say, why has that happened? I'm sure there are many factors, but at least one is what Paul says in 1 Timothy, and that is this, that the more we make, the more our hope gravitates to what we make, and the more we we begin to see what we have as the key to happiness and security and safety. 
And it's ironic. The very thing God has given to us to use to bless other people by giving it away is the very thing that's choking our giving. Sometimes I wonder if God doesn't use financial setbacks to jog our memory about who this really belongs to. So, hear this word, Orchard Church. Let's prove ourselves the exception to the rule. Let's prove that our hope is not in what the riches that we have, but in Him who richly provides for us. And let's finish what we started. See, two years ago, we moved into this building and we put together a, an effort, endeavor called Reach 901. And the idea was to, now that we have a little home, a church home here, let's make it home. Let's, and so we renovated the worship center, renovated the student ministry area, worked in the children's ministry area, put classrooms in for disciple making to take place on, on, on Sunday morning. Other times, uh, put in offices for a, a growing staff, for a, a, a growing church. And our goal was, three years ago, our goal was, let's give $2.5 million to do this. And 10% of it goes to missions to do the kind of efforts that we have with the, the Shea people and because of a generous person in this church who said, I want to double anything that's given to missions, we actually give 20%. And let's give 50% to get the building put into a shape that is usable, not luxurious, but usable, and then 40% to retire debt. So that's what we started tw- two years ago. And in the last two years, you have given $1.7 million. So we have one year to finish what we started to raise $800,000. It's all for the glory of God. It's all to say that God is, God is all satisfying uh, to us. And, some of, and, and Paul says there ought to be an eager willingness in verse 11. He says there ought to be this readiness. We don't want to do this out of a sense of duty. Giving is a duty, but it's a joyful duty. And some of us say, well, I'm Scottish. I'm Dutch, really hard for me to give. So how can I do this? How can I give with joy? And Paul tells us in verse 10, he says, if you'll contemplate Jesus Christ and what Christ did, who was rich and for our sakes became poor, came to this broken planet, lived among us, said, I don't even have a place to lay my head, went to a cross, died there. He who was rich in heaven became poor so that we who are poor might become rich. And there is something about contemplating Jesus that changes how we view things and gives us a joy in in giving. And to spark our, our memories on this, when you leave today, you're going to get a bracelet. And it says, reach 901 and it's simply a, a memory device to help us to remember at 9.01 in the morning and at 9.01 at night, we want to think about Jesus. We want to think about what he has done for us. And we want to ask this question. Since you're the owner of all of it, what do you want us to do? So I would challenge you over the next two weeks, wear this bracelet, pick it up when you leave, and just ask the question, Lord, because of your gift to us in Jesus, what do you want us to do? What do you want me to do? 
So you'll receive that bracelet when you leave. By the way, this that thing about idea of finishing the job, finishing the task, where did we get the where did we get the idea about the Shea people, these people from North Africa and, and, and in France? Two years ago I attended a conference called Finish the Task. And in that conference, I was just seeking the Lord. Lord, is there somebody you want us to invest in? Some unreached, unengaged people group? And I couldn't come up with anything. And I called my son, Joey, who's a missionary to Muslims. And I said, well, you have any ideas? And he said, did you know that there are two missionaries in France from Memphis? I went, hmm. And he said, they're working with this people group. I went, oh, so I thought, well, maybe that's a possibility. That's an interesting coincidence. And I went to a breakout. There were 800 people at this conference. They had 20 breakouts. I went to one of the breakouts, just a, a breakout uh, on something. There were six people in the room. I went into the room, sat down, and we began talking. And I mentioned, well, we're thinking about engaging the Shea people of North Africa and France. And another, one, another person in the room, a woman, said, well, I know, I know somebody who's working in Morocco. How about I call her and see if she knows anything about them? So she picks up her phone and from Southern California calls Morocco and gets this lady on the phone, Christian worker who's been there for many years, and says, hey, you know anything about the Shea people? She puts it on the speakerphone and the lady says, yeah, my neighbors are Shea people. They've been in our home and we're trying to share Jesus with them. And I'm sitting there listening to this going, do-do-do-do-do-do. <laughs> This is too much. So I came back, talked to our elders, talked to uh, our, our staff. And so we have adopted the Shea people, two and a half million, and uh, helped to fund the translation of the New Testament into their language because of the, your generous giving. And because of Reach 901, we're going to be able to do some things that we could not do otherwise to reach these folks. And as far as I know, there's only one, there's a community group, a small group in Texas. There's only one other person I found in the whole world who is focused on this group of people. So let's finish the task. And by the way, he says, he says in verse 12, this is for everybody. You see, in that church in Corinth, there was not only a conflict between Jews and Gentiles, there was a conflict between rich people and poor people. When they had the Lord's Supper, they had a big meal called the Agape Feast, and the wealthy people in the church would bring their picnic baskets, and they would eat, and some of them brought wine, and some of them even got inebriated at the Lord's Supper, and here are the poor people over here going hungry. And Paul addresses that in this letter, and, the, and here is what he says is this, those of you who, are, who don't have a whole lot, don't think that because you're giving just a little bit, it doesn't matter compared to what all the other people who are more wealthy are doing. Don't think that at all. Because God is not so much concerned that you give out of what you don't have. He said he's willing to receive just out of what you do have. So he says, everybody ought to have a part in this. And in that church, there were slaves. He, he deals with the subject of slavery in the book of 1 Corinthians. And the commentator William Barclay says, when slaves participated in this offering, they were putting off their freedom because they were collecting money to buy their freedom. And in order to participate in this offering, they're delaying their own freedom. That's just making God look great, and worthy, and all satisfying. So Paul says, let's finish this. Let's finish it. 
And so this, if this is your church home and you believe in what we're doing here, I want to encourage you to take that to heart, God's word to you. If you come into the church over the last two years, you've enjoyed what other people have given and sacrificed for, and I want to encourage you to make a commitment over the next year to join in Reach 901 and be a part of this with us so that we can finish what we started. And if you made a commitment, you've been here a while, you made a commitment and you've not completed it, let's finish what we started. And Paul says, number two, let's do it together. Let's do it together. Beginning with verse 13. I want you to think about the world we live in. I was shaving this morning and the lights went out for a moment. So if I nick myself, that's my reason. And sometimes when we have thunderstorms, the lights go out. There are 1.6 billion people in the world who have no electricity, and they won't have any. Today, we use about 150 gallons of water, clean water here in Memphis. We drink it, we wash clothes in it, we take baths in it. One billion people on the planet have no access to drinking water, clean drinking water at all, which means their life is a time bomb waiting for them to drink some bug that's going to take them out. Do you know most of the people on this planet are nauseous most of the time because they don't have clean drinking water? Every seven seconds, a child under the age of five dies of hunger. And 14% of the food that we prepare, we throw away. In fact, we spend more money on diet programs than the world needs to feed itself. This week, the average teenager will spend about $20 a day on something he wants or she wants. Gas, incidentals, snacks, whatever. There are two and a half billion people who live with their families on 10% of what a teenager spends in an average day. $2 a day. Themselves and their family. A billion and a half people. We live in a very poor world. And most of us don't experience it. 300 million people in our country, a little less than 5% of the world's population. We consume 20% of the world's resources. And I don't say this to make anybody feel guilty. It's just that as Christians, we need to be aware of this. We need to know this. We live in a broken world. And God has richly blessed us, and we have to ask, why? Why? Here's the point. What can we do? The world's a big place. Well, if you take your Bible and you go from Genesis to Revelation and you look at every time God speaks about the poor or the oppressed or the disenfranchised or the marginalized, people who are having a hard time, the hungry, all through the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, 95% of the time he's talking about the poor in Israel or in the church. Those who are in the church are a special concern to God. Galatians 6.10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So here's what Paul is saying. You want to help all those poor people in Jerusalem? Then help the church in Jerusalem. You want to help the Africans, 4,500 of them dying every day of AIDS? Then help the church in Africa. You want to help this people group, then help a church to send prayer warriors and send business people who will start businesses and preach the gospel and send people who will go there and learn the language and live 
and share Christ with them. You want to make a difference in Memphis? Then partner with a local elementary school, a church with a local elementary school, to feed about 100 children in Memphis every week, which is what we're doing. You want to help the homeless in Memphis? Then help parts of a church, Buck and Marilyn Ray, who have the church without walls, and they feed dozens and dozens and minister and love and share the gospel with dozens and dozens of homeless people every week. You want to make disciples in the eastern suburbs of Memphis? Then put a facility together with rooms enough where we can have training classes, study classes, and meet all through the week that people can be discipled and learn to make a difference in the world. We're like snowflakes. A little snowflake is nothing in itself. You get enough of them together and they'll stop traffic. And you get enough of us together who are followers of Christ and watch what happens. And you notice they pool their gifts. Paul doesn't say, I'm sending my gift. Now you guys send your gift. No, no, no. Because if, we, if he did that, the wealthy would say, well, I'm, I'm probably giving too much. And the poor would say, well, mine doesn't matter. But you put it all together and you send it and only Jesus gets the credit. Only he looks good. For 2,000 years, Christian disciples have given together. What we're saying is everything belongs to God. Everything, we manage it for him. And we give proportionate to what we have, not what we don't have. And that way nobody's proud and nobody's embarrassed. We're a team. We belong together. We pray together. We live together. We work together. We, we give together. And it doesn't happen without a plan. You don't drift into generosity. It has to be a priority. So two weeks from today, we're having a day of commitment. We're calling it First Fruits Day. And what we're asking all of us who are a part of this church, call this church our home in some way, we're asking all of us to make a commitment that over this next year we finish the job and we do it together. And that we bring the first part of what we're going to give, we bring it on that day. It's kind of a First Fruits offering uh, to the Lord. We want to finish what God has given us to do, and we want to do it together. And by the way, just ask this question. Why did God permit those poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem to suffer like they did? You know, anytime there's a need, and everybody in here has a need. If I did a little survey, everybody raised their hand, yeah, I have a need. Every time we have a need, God has a purpose for that. In fact, God is either allowing it or he's causing it. Why would God do that? Why would God allow for 2,000 years a people group in North Africa, two and a half million, they don't have the gospel? Why would God allow that? Would God, is it possible that God would allow those Jewish Christians in Jerusalem to go through what they're going through so that a church in Corinth can have their hearts turn and gripped and together with other churches, give so those people can be helped and that demonstrates the power of the unity, the power of Jesus to bring people together. Could that be a possible reason? Could it be a possible reason that the reason God has allowed a large people group in North Africa and France not to get the gospel yet is so that halfway around the world, there might be a church called the Orchard that would get our hearts gripped and torn about what God cares about, and we would open our lives and our pocketbooks to give and to go. Could that be possible? Why did 9-11 take place? Why did God allow 9-11 to take place? Planes flying into the World Trade Centers, thousands of people dying. Why would God allow that? Did you know when that, that took place, there were 20 million Dalits, which is the lowest caste in India, as, as I understand it, 
20 million who are trying to decide we will go with either Islam or we will go with Christianity. And they saw what happened. And they said, we'll go with Christianity. So Paul says, God's all over this. Let's finish what we started. Let's do it together. And then he says this. Let's do it wisely. Let's do it wisely. Verses 16 of chapter 8 all the way through chapter 9, uh, verse 5. If you're going to give, give wisely. We all know that. If you go downtown Memphis, somebody comes up to you, they're panhandling. Hey, can you spare a couple of dollars? What do you do? You probably don't give them money. I don't. I say, let me take you over to McDonald's. Let me take you to Starbucks. Let me get you something to eat. Because we know what's going to happen if we just give money. Let me, or let me take you somewhere where you can get some help, and I'll go with you. We'll sit down and we'll eat together. Paul says, if you're going to give, give in such a way that people are not hurt by it, but they're actually helped by it. And so he knows anytime you're collecting a bunch of money, there's somebody who's going to stand back and go, oh, how do we know Paul's going to take all of it to Jerusalem? How, we, how do we know he's not going to pad his pockets with this? There's always people who are skeptical when there's a large amount of money that's been collected. So Paul says this, this great evangelist, this great missionary, this man who is so busy and yet he has to make tents on the side gets down into the weeds of administration and says, here's how we're going to take this offering. I'm sending Titus. You all know him. He's proven. And in addition, I'm sending two other guys, and they were all selected by the churches. They are proven character, and the four of us are going to take this offering. There's accountability that's built in there. There's a structure of, of, of accountability. And so Paul simply says, when you give, make sure you give wisely. Make sure that there's an accountability built in. When I started the church nine years ago, I said to our first bookkeeper, just not, not much happening at all, but I said, would you make sure our books are so squeaky clean that we could put them on the front page of the commercial appeal if need be? We want high integrity in the way we handle it. We want every penny as possible accounted for. So when you see these folks who are administrators in our church, you see these folks who are exercising their gifts and they're taking care of the building and they're taking care of communication, don't despise them. They're gifts from God to us to help us, to give wisely. So Paul just says, and by the way, Paul doesn't say, oh, just trust me on this. <laughs> just No, no, he doesn't do that. He gets into the details. Here's the way we can give it in such a way we take pains that nobody's going to accuse us of taking some of it for ourselves. He says, finish the work. Let's do it together. And he says, let's do it wisely. And you know what happened? Did these people give? Did that offering take place? Well, Paul, we know, got to Corinth. And while he's there, he writes the letter to the Romans, what some people believe is the greatest letter ever written by anybody. And in the letter to the Romans, Paul says in chapter 15, I'm coming to you from Corinth. I'm here. I'm going to you in Rome, and we are bringing an offering that the people here have given. So they did it. They actually did it. They finished it, and they gave it. And Paul says here, everywhere I go, I boast about you. I boast about your generosity. And I got to tell you, folks, the same is true for me. All over the city of Memphis, all over wherever God lets me travel, 
I boast about you people. I boast about our elders. I boast about our deacons. I boast about our ministry teams. And I boast about the generosity of this church. I really do. I could not be more grateful to you. And like Paul, I want to say, don't let my boasting be hollow. Let's finish the work. Let's do it together. And let's do it wisely. There are only two words that you're going to say to God. You'll either say, yours, or you'll say, mine. You can either say, Lord, my life is yours. Everything I have is yours. It's all yours. I'm the manager. I'll take care of it. I'll do my best. But it is yours. Or you'll say, it's mine. My life is mine. It's all mine. And those who say it's yours, just like Ali in the video, I gave him everything. Took him as not only as my Savior, but my Lord. It's all his. Those who say it's yours, my life is yours, go to heaven. Because they're trusting not in what they have done. They're trusting in what was done for them by Jesus on the cross. Those who say, it's mine, go to hell. There are really only two words you can say to God. Yours or mine. And those who say it's yours, the dominoes start falling. It really has had an effect in our lives.